This episode is sponsored by the Perfect 3 Collagen. Collagen is the most abundant form of protein in our bodies, and like many things, it starts to decline as we age. If you're noticing low energy, cravings, joint pain, or dull skin and hair, you'll want to check out their collagen creamer. Add it to coffee, tea, or milk to enjoy high-quality collagen and brain-boosting superfoods on a daily basis. Check them out at theperfect3.com or visit the link in our show notes and get 10% off your first order. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And, you know, this has been a big week for menopause, and it's only Wednesday. For those of you who may not be football fans, there was a commercial, 30-second commercial, that made it to the Super Bowl. I think it was the Mm pregame, and it was on menopause and hot flashes. And it just happened that Bridget and I were interviewing one of the doctors involved in a new medication for hot flashes, and we were like, let's move this episode up a little bit because it really goes well and complements the information that was given out on this commercial. So to start with, the commercial is a 30-second commercial that's sponsored by Estellas Pharmaceuticals, and it talks about VMS, which is vasomotor symptoms. It's just another term for hot flashes, hot flushes, night sweats. And it talks about women being educated, asking women on the street, do you know what VMS is? And of course, one thought it was a K-pop band and, you know, (laughs) none of the women knew what VMS was. It refers you to a website, whatsvms.com. Now, that website is also sponsored by Estellas. And why is this important? Well, our guest today is Dr. Nanette Santoro, and she is a professor and E. Stewart Chair of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She works, you know, she specializes in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, but she also specializes in research on menopause. And she is one of the physicians on the board reviewing Estellas' newest medication. This medication is called Fezolinotont. And we're going to call it Fezo for short because that's way too long a mouthful to to talk about the entire time. But what it does is it is actually a non-hormonal medication that blocks receptors in the brain that produce hot flashes. So Dr. Santora is going to explain to us what the research is showing, how it helps, but we thought it would be really helpful to kind of break it down before we got into the interview and say it in a way that us lay people could really understand understand. a little better. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right now, FESO is in phase three trials in front of the FDA. So the the decision from the FDA could be coming down any week now. It's been some people were saying by the end of February, but Dr. Santora explained she couldn't possibly know and no one else could. What does FESO do? It is a non-hormonal medication that blocks receptors in your hypothalamus. So what's the hypothalamus? That's a part of your brain that, as Dr. Santor explains, is the way station in your brain. And it has something called candy neurons. That's K-N-D-Y. 
please don't ask me to explain what the K, the yeah, N, the D. She, and she, she talks about it, um, but I know it's there. Yes. <laughs> so yes. there are candy neurons that are responsible for triggering hot flashes. They believe. Now, this is what research indicates. It's, it's not 100%, but research indicates that these neurons trigger hot flashes. So when your estrogen starts to drop, those neurons start to go a little wonky and your body temperature gets dysregulated, hence hot flashes. So women with moderate to severe hot flashes, and they define that anywhere from seven up a day or 50 up a week, were tested using this non-hormonal medication. It, it disrupts the receptors so that you won't be triggering hot flashes as frequently. And in each of these studies, phase one and phase two, they showed that women with moderate to severe hot flashes were given Fezo and their hot flashes improved. And on a higher dosage, they actually slept better. You know, this was so timely too, Colleen, because we had a uh, listener send us an email that really, it broke my heart for the listener, but it was so timely. She had suffered a stroke. She can't take hormones. She's having terrible hot flashes, terrible night sweats. And it just so happened this this episode was going to be aired. So I shared that with her that, you know, even though you're not, it's not FDA approved as of yet, that we're, Colleen says it in the interview, she says, we're going to say when and not yeah. if, when, because we are so positive this thing is going to come through. We really hope that Fezo is something that women that cannot take hormones will be able to take. And the there are a couple of things, Bridget, and I want to make clear. Number one, we are not doctors. We are not claiming to be doctors, but we will interview the experts and physicians who do know this information, like Dr. Nanette Santoro. And again, the gold standard for treatment is hormone therapy. But if you can't take hormone therapy or you choose after a discussion with your doctor not to take hormone therapy, this is potentially an option that will be coming out hopefully soon, and then will be marketed to the doctors. Dr. Santor explains that you've got to go through pricing and getting it to the doctors to find out. But if you know that it's available, you can actually bring it to your doctor's attention and say, there is a medication out there that I would like to look into. Can you be my advocate? And knowledge is power. Yeah. So again, the gold standard, hormone therapy, NAMS you know, suggests that. The physicians suggest that, and we obviously support that. This is an option. You know, I just really feel for the women that don't have that option because there are risks. And I do ask Dr. Santoros about those risks because sometimes it's unclear. It's unclear if you have a family history. So you will hear about that because a lot of people that have a family history of breast cancer stroke or blood clots, they're unsure if they are a good candidate. So with that being said, we will let Dr. Nanette Santoro explain it. Welcome back, guys. We are talking to Dr. Nanette Santoro, and we, Bridget and I have been waiting for this interview. We are thrilled to talk to her. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We appreciate your time. We know you're very busy. And Bridget and I started to do some research on these non-hormonal medications that are in phase three trials with the FDA. And your name kept coming up. And I was like, oh my gosh, we need to talk to her about this. Before we get started on talking about kind of these change-making medications that are going to be available hopefully soon 
for women. I wanted to talk to you about the article that came out recently in the New York Times called Women Have Been Misled About Menopause. And you were quoted in it. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that you kind of were on the front line when the report came out from the Women's Health Initiative in 2002 about kind of the negative information and risks. And I wanted to find out from you, what was it like being a physician at that time with patients who were taking hormonal therapy? Well, I think think since that time, we've seen a lot of sort of wacky information campaigns where stuff that seems neutral immediately goes south and becomes this polarizing uh, situation. And, And that was really one of the very first times I had experienced that because I personally wasn't prescribing hormone therapy for the sole purpose of preventing heart disease. I think that some clinicians may have been doing that. And I think with that came this profound sense of, oh my goodness, that wasn't a good idea. Some people went into regret mode. Other people went into hostile denial mode. No, that can't be true. The study was wrong. And people got still stuck in prevention world and and were unable to just take themselves out of that and go to, people are having hot flashes. We need to treat them. Now we have a very good assessment of what risks may accrue to them with hormone therapy, nothing was earth shattering except the fact that it wasn't protective. Most of us expected it to be protective, but it it wasn't. So move on, you know, nothing to look at here. People move on, (laughs) give hormones when they're indicated and don't give them when they're not. So, you know, the communication of risk, and I really thought that the reporter on this article said it well. I mean, it was just a mess. Um, And no one could have predicted, I think at the time, how it was going to go so badly. Uh, Many doctors had patients calling in an absolute flop sweat panic. You know, oh my goodness, you know, I'm taking poison. And and I mean, just none of that's true. And now that we have 18-year follow-up on the women who took these hormones, for the most part overall, There's just no difference in long-term health outcomes. There are nuances to that data, but it again confirms that this is pretty low-risk stuff. Once you accept the fact that nothing, there's no free lunch and everything has some risk attached to it. So you kind of answered part of my question. What were your thoughts on that article? Because Bridget and I found it incredibly comprehensive as far as telling the history of hormone therapy, how the media has misled a lot of women into absolute panic and fear over taking medication that is hormone therapy. What were your thoughts on the article? I don't know that there's any one person that or party that should be blamed. I think there were just a lot of things that were communication missteps that could we have done it better? Yes. Um, many clinicians were angry you know, that they weren't told about it beforehand, but yet you're running the study. How can you tell them beforehand without telling the women who are doing it? So I thought that that was captured pretty well by Susan Dominus in the article, some of that that chaos. And I think that some of the ways that everything got interpreted really have left us in a, in a tough position. Many other treatments have come out that are bogus and that purport to be better. They're uncontrolled studies. And, you know, we still have good old hormones that I have many patients that come in and just say, I'm, oh, I'm not going to take those. 
Yes. Yeah. And I find physicians to this day, or not not every, but many, and some that have happened to me personally, when I go and ask about this, and I remember the first time I asked about this, I was 47 years old, and I was having hot flashes unbelievably just at night, at least 15 times a day, you know, sometimes three times an hour, hot flashes. I asked about it, and it just wasn't even considered for me. She thought I was too young. She did the uh, F, the for, uh, follicle-stimulating hormone blood test with that and said, oh, yeah, okay, it looks like you are. I was probably perimenopausal because I wasn't 12 months out, but was denied. Do you, you know, I'm finding this to be a situation. I did find another physician that was very open to discussing this with me, and I wanted uh, a hormone replacement. Some people don't want it. Do you find that it's really hard to get the word out to different physicians that maybe this is not as risky as it had initially seemed? I think that that was also addressed in the Times article. I think there's a training gap that we've just had this turning away from hormone therapy so that the level of comfort with it is reduced. So a lot of people just don't get enough training um, in OBGYN they get maybe six weeks of training in reproductive hormones, and that includes menopause. Uh, there's some training modules that they can take. So you have to go out of your way to do it. You know, for example, my colleagues in family medicine, we have many here at the University of Colorado who I inadvertently insulted with my quote in the article, which I didn't mean to do. But uh, I, what I really meant to say is most family medicine doctors have 15 minutes to spend with a patient. And if you're going to have a lengthy discussion about hormone therapy, you really need a lot of extra skill training experience to be able to have that conversation, and you probably need to make another visit. I have a reproductive endocrine practice where I do a lot of what we call evaluation and management for uh, menopausal patients, and those are not very well-paying visits. So there's a, a time disincentive and there's a financial disincentive, and you know, doctors, some, many doctors choose not to go there. Many fearless doctors still will do it. And there are um, the North American Menopause Society, for example, has certified practitioners. These are people, they're physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, midwives, PAs who have taken a specific interest in menopause and have gone to the trouble to learn it, to go through the guide for learning. And those are places where women can find information that may help direct them to doctors who will be more sympathetic. But, you know, you're not the only person that I've heard say that I've gone to someone and they were just, oh, we, we're not just, let's not go there. Currently, there are two non-hormonal medications that appear to be in phase three trials, if I'm correct, that could help women with hot flashes. And that can be a change maker. Your current research in menopause is involved with one of them. I thought the best way for our listeners to understand would be to break down first what is happening in your brain with a hot flash, what research has shown with a hypothalamus and hot flashes. Could you break down and explain exactly what is happening in the brain when a woman has a hot flash? Well, I can't explain it exactly because it's not fully known, but I would say that 10 or 15 years ago, there was, whoa, estrogen goes away. There's this black box in the brain. We have no idea what the wiring is. And 
people get this, that we called, called it the thermoregulatory center in the brain. And we had a vague idea that it was located in the hypothalamus. So for those of you who haven't heard of the hypothalamus, because not many people have, it's sort of the waste, it's a waste station in the midbrain and pretty much connects to everything else in the brain. So it was not particularly helpful to have that location of where it was. Um, until we came up with uh, the candy neurons. And by we, I'm talking about Naomi Rance, who was a neuropathologist in Arizona. She noted that in animals and in humans that had had their ovaries removed, this specific neuron in the brain, the candy neuron, it stands for kispeptin, neurokinin, and dynorphin. So kispeptin is one of the molecules that governs the reproductive system. Neurokinin is sort of a pro-inflammatory molecule, uh, and there's many, there's a family of them. So that receptor was related to inflammatory processes and some connected to different nerves. And dynorphin governs the endogenous opioid system in the brain. So these are all sort of pretty basic functions. And again, in that midbrain that has many, many inputs and many outputs. But that finding led her to do some further experiments. And there were beginnings, some other research that was coalescing, saying these tachykinins, which also can interact with neurokinin receptors, were related in some women to a higher risk of hot flashes and epidemiologic studies. So the interest was accruing. She blocked that receptor with an antibody and found in animals that it seemed to eliminate hot flashes. You can't ask an experimental rodent if they're having hot flashes or not, but there are ways to be able to tell. And in one particularly clever experiment done by another scientist, uh, they created a tube where part of the tube was cold, part of the tube was warm, and the animals had their ovaries out. If you had blocked the neurokinin receptor, the animals who had their ovaries out were all over the tube. They didn't care where they went as long as that receptor was blocked. The animals that weren't blocked were all huddled at the colder end of the tube because they were having hot flashes. So it was a great way to tell that this was, this was the problem. This is where it worked. So it's thought that there's two places have those neurokinin receptors. One is in that area where the kispeptin neurons are in the hypothalamus. And there's a second set of neurons, interneurons that interact with that, that seem to also have this neurokinin receptor. So we know that those neurons go increase with menopause. They go up. If you block them, you're going to be able to block, you theoretically would be able to block hot flashes. And it looks like it's highly specific that it works as well as estrogen. And that's really what has doctors uh, and clinicians really excited about it because the only other FDA-approved medication for hot flashes is paroxetine mesylate. It's a long-acting salt of paroxetine, um, also commercially known as Paxil, but this compound is Brisdel. And it works, but it's not, it just barely edged out the placebo effect so it wasn't of that order of magnitude. And every other treatment we have that we use off-label works a little bit, but for most women, not nearly as well as estrogen. First off, the term non-hormonal is going to pique women's interest because of the fact that they are so afraid to take hormones. How do you get that to go into, we were saying that it's phase three trials, but how do you even get it to a phase one trial? Well, phase one is where you, um, that's when you're looking mostly at that. Those are the very first experiments in humans for toxicity. So you give it to a very limited number of people in phase one. 
and you just make sure that it doesn't have any awful side effects. You go through different doses, um, and you've already done all your animal research where you've shown that, you know, what dose kills half of the animals. So you're kind of in the ballpark. You look at pregnancy outcomes in the animals. Um, and you, you look at the molecular structure and try to figure out, you know, is there going to be a problem with this? Does it have any particular configuration that it may be toxic to the kidney, to the liver, wherever? Where do we have to look? So uh, the many several compounds actually have gone through that. And there's many others right now that are also in testing. Fezolinitant is ahead of the others. It is now actually with the FDA pending approval. So we could hear any day now. Um, that it's approved. We could also hear that it's not approved, but I am a consultant for the company and uh, on their scientific advisory board. The data looks good that I know of, and I'm hoping that it will be approved. And we've just published a couple of new papers on it showing the safety and the effectiveness. You know, so many women, they are, like Colleen said, just they hear the word hormones and they they go back to the 2002 study and they are terrified. I would love to really, you know, get, wrap my head around who is really at risk for her hormone replacement. Yeah, important question because there are some women that that should not take it. And most women are actually pretty low risk in the 50 to 60 age group, age range. But for some women who have had, for example, a blood clot, a venous thromboembolism, that would be a deep vein thrombosis in the calf or a lung pulmonary embolus, those women should not take estrogen. Um, it's generally recommended they don't. Women who cannot take estrogen at all are women with breast cancer. The mainstay of treatment for breast cancer is giving an aromatase inhibitor, which wipes out your estrogen levels. And any estrogen exposure is thought to help encourage the cancer to mutate and grow. Women with endometrial cancer. So there are some other rarer estrogen-dependent cancers where we don't want to give hormones. Those are the biggest contraindications by far. What about family history? Because we hear from a lot of listeners, oh, my mother had breast cancer, my aunt had breast cancer. I can't take it. What about people like that that have a family history of it? Yeah, and every it's not it's not in every case that you need to be afraid of hormones for that reason. So there's a few objective ways that women can estimate the breast cancer risk. Family history is one piece. The age of first birth is another major, major determinant of risk. And uh, depending on when the breast cancer occurred in that family member, that also influences the risk. So the age at which a woman got the cancer. So for example, your mother got cancer when she was in her 70s. That is much less of an impact on your risk of breast cancer than if your mother got it when she was in her 30s. So, uh, and how many family members have it uh, also makes a difference whether there's any genetic mutations associated with it because it might prompt genetic testing. And the amount of risk that hormones add to an already high breast cancer risk is not always as high as people think it is. So some women will still choose to take that risk because their their hot flashes are so miserable. And so it is not an unreasonable thing. And I will usually work with my patients. We'll look at an objective breast cancer risk model um, because then we're just talking about a disease they do not have. Once they get a disease, that's a different story. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. 
and we're back. So in the FESO trials, the women were between 40 and 65, and they had at least seven, I think the average was seven hot flashes. Were there any um, side effects that were noted during the phase tri- during the trials? They, they had to have at least seven hot flashes a day and a mean of at least 50 a week because that's the FDA guidance for hot flash studies. So if you want to show that something's effective against hot flashes, you need to test it in sort of the biggest, baddest hot flashers. So these women are, are they're just on fire. And so Bridget would have been, I would have been a great candidate. I would have been. Yes. Yeah. Because the trial was done during COVID, uh, we had a lot of COVID related side effects, headache, body aches, nausea, things like that. They seem to be distributed equally among the people taking placebo and FESO. So really no side effects. There was noted in the early studies with similar related compounds and also with FESO at higher doses that women reported back that they were sleeping better. So in some of the newer studies, sleep was incorporated and it does look like uh, we've presented that as an abstract uh, that there were some improvements in sleep and a, a paper is being prepared for publication on that. That'll be great news because we hear that from so many, so many women. That's us. another thing that comes along with menopause is the the disturbance of sleep. Yeah, so that would be huge. And in one of the very early studies with a different compound, it looked like women were even losing weight with this type of compound. So I think I was high-fiving with one of my colleagues in the back of the room. It's like, it's the menopause poly pill. But, uh, you know, we need to see what happens when it gets out in clinical use and we're using it in, in all of our the patients we typically will treat, um, the women in the fezolinitan studies do look like they were pretty much representative. About 20% were African-American, about 20, 25% were Latina, and uh, about a quarter had hysterectomies. So that's pretty, and based on their um, BMI was around 28, which is about the average BMI for women in that age group. Uh, they seem pretty representative of American women, so that's good to see. Mm-hmm. What about women that are already on hormone replacement? Would it be okay if they switched, if they said, oh, this, if this becomes approved? Do you know if it would be okay if they said, oh, I want to try this instead? Well, sure. I think it's a completely reasonable thing. We're giving hormones to alleviate symptoms, so when we have another treatment. And often when I have a patient who has been on hormones for long enough that we feel like she's kind of timed out and she's beginning to get risks that we don't want her to have, this may be something to switch switch her to. Once it's approved, and we're putting out in the universe that it will be approved, so we're not even saying if. When it's approved, how do, how do doctors find out and prescribe the medication? Because... It seems like the doctors are a little delayed on information on menopause. How do we make sure that not only our listeners can ask for it, but that it's an option that they're given? There's a number, there's a number of ways that, that it gets delayed. So first of all, it gets approved, but then um, it has to be costed out. Arrangements are made with insurance companies. Are you going to pay for this? If so, how much are you going to pay? What's the patient's copay going to be? And then it has it has to get on the formulary. So a hospital formulary committee, uh, like we have in our hospital in Colorado, or whatever uh, wherever it's going to be prescribed, 
by the insurance companies, they have to put it on their formulary. And that can take months. So that can delay it further. Um, cost can be a big issue. Um, you know, I am a scientific advisor to Estellas, the company that's going to market it, but I do not have the capacity to advise them on cost. I have made my sentiments clear. I really hope this is going to be affordable for women. But we have noted in the menopause field that many menopause treatments are not picked up by pharmacies. Or if you, you're not the average patient and the simple stuff doesn't work for you and you need a slightly more complicated treatment, it's wildly expensive. So those things are pretty disappointing. And, you know, we just don't know yet where that's how that's going to fall out. So that can take time. Um, sometimes there's there's issues with physicians not learning about it. And that's part that's part of that's on the burden on the company is to get the information out. And that's why they will bring uh, detail people to doctor's offices and practitioners to to you know acquaint them with the compound and give them more information but a lot of times those that access has been restricted uh, because there's always worry about conflict of interest and giving physicians uh, you know two incentives to prescribe new more expensive drugs so those things can be barriers to getting the information out but some of the reasons or the reasons behind it are good but it may make it take longer are there any People, are there contraindications for the medication, women who should not be taking? There are no contraindications at present. That is great to know because that's just the, the most frightening thing for women. And, and another point that I want to make, too, that I've seen in some of your talks that I've looked uh, watched on YouTube or the Internet um, is that the treatment just of menopause that how it shouldn't be really, it's not really a disease, that it is a natural phase. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how that can be an issue? Sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of concern about the medicalization of menopause. And there's also, you know, th messages that I feel are anti-woman and anti-feminist. Uh, and it's highly gendered, like, oh, women and their hormones, you know. Uh, I think Rebecca Thurston said it well in the Times article, we seem to be comfortable and more comfortable with women suffering in our society than uh, we perhaps should be. And women don't always speak up and agitate and advocate for themselves as much as they could. So I do think that having advocacy in this area would really be helpful. Do you think that the FDA will make some type of decision soon or you just have no idea? <laughs> If I could predict the FDA's behavior, I would be at the racetrack right now betting because I would be <laughs> I was reading about the phase two trials were in 2015, 2016, and then phase three, if I'm understanding correctly, started in 2019. Is it normal to take this long or do you think the COVID might have delayed? I think that's actually pretty fast. This is okay. This is one of the encouragingly fast translations of the basic science into into something that's clinically useful our listeners are the are your patients are the women that come in and say i'm afraid to take hormonal medications and i wish i knew that there were tr there were medications that are going to be offered hopefully soon that can help my hot flashes and I think just finding out more about the fact that it, the hypothalamus and, and the neurons, obviously we're lay people, so it sounds a little Latin to us, but mm -hmm. more information we can give our listeners. 
Yeah, and we will learn a lot, you know, in post-marketing is sometimes where we learn a lot. And we do also learn about the weird and rare side effects that can happen. So as of now, I would say probably we're up to thousands of women that have been studied, but we're not up to tens of thousands. And that's when you can pick up anything that might be unusual or rare um, that may lead to further precautions or contraindications for the medication. But as of now, um, we have a good one year of safety on women, and it looks quite safe. The physicians and the the researchers that are coming out with this stuff that is actually going to make such a difference in women's lives. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really fun to do because it does make a difference. It does. It's absolutely fun. Well, that was really amazing to hear. We're so excited to hear this news, um, to hear about Estella coming out with Fezzo and hopefully becoming um, FDA approved very soon. And we also want to thank Dr. Nanette Santoro for just sharing this with us. We're so thrilled that we were able to get her on the show because she is on the review board for this medication. And just the dedication that people like her put into finding help for people in menopause. We have the show notes too, guys. If there's something you didn't understand or you want the spelling of something. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we do. Because that would be a big thing. If you do go to your physician and you want to ask about this medication, you're going to want to know how to spell it. (laughs) And even if the pharmacist can't read the physician's writing on the prescription, they'll have a good idea. They do. They Just do bring our show job. notes. It, it is so amazing. And, you know, I, I'm curious, too. Many of you know that I am on hormone therapy right now. Do I want to stay on it for a long time? I, you know, it's getting it's going to come up soon where it's that 10-year time that I've been on it. And I've heard from different doctors, it's okay. And then different doctors, maybe after 10 years, you don't want to be on it. This is an option because it is non-hormonal. So I, I just, it's exciting. You know, and it, it is. Yes. And it's not the only medication that is currently in phase three trials. There's another non-hormonal medication that is sponsored by Bayer, which might be coming out this year as well. And they're in phase three trials. So the landscape is changing as far as options for women in menopause. And when you can say you saw a menopause commercial On the Super Bowl, well, you know, that's changing the narrative right there. It sure is. Just, you know, and it was awareness, bringing awareness, which most of our listeners are very aware, but please just spread the word. Spread the word. Talk to your girlfriends. Talk to the women in your family. And you can do that as well by following us on social media because we'll have a lot of this stuff posted on our social media and you can just share it. Share it on your yes, Instagram. Share, share it on Facebook. You have our permission to share. <laughs> yes. But that's how the word gets out and that's how women, you know, we are our own best advocates and sometimes we get information from our friends more than we get from our doctors. So we hope you learned a lot from this episode. We certainly did. We will keep you posted on if and when, I like to say when, the FDA approves Fezzo, and then we will talk more about it. So enjoy your week, guys. We will talk to you next time. Bye.